Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, a poem for winter. I am offering this poem to you, since I have nothing else to give. Keep it like a warm coat when winter comes to cover you, or like a pair of thick socks the cold cannot bite through. I love you. I have nothing else to give you, so it is a pot full of yellow corn to warm your belly in winter. It is a scarf for your head, to wear over your hair, to tie up around your face. I love you. Keep it. Treasure this as you would if you were lost, needing direction. In the wilderness life becomes when mature. And in the corner of your drawer, tucked away like a cabin or hogan in dense trees, come knocking and I will answer, give you directions, and let you warm yourself by this fire, rest by this fire, and make you feel safe. I love you. It's all I have to give, and all anyone needs to live, and to go on living inside when the world outside no longer cares if you live or die. Remember. I love you. And that was New Mexico poet Jimmy Santiago Bacas. I am offering this poem, read by Ben Smith, a production of Ben Reads Poetry, our best of the net hotspot this week. And coming up next on Arts Express. We've always loved horror. It's just the horror hasn't always loved us. Black people play a particular role in horror films. First, we weren't in it. We were played by white people. Yeah. We went from maids to pimps and hoes. If there was somebody black, they would be the first to die. <clears throat> black films hold a mirror up to society, but at the same time give an audience an escape. My name is Blackula. <laughs> One fellow said to me, you were directing before it was legal. You can be the boss down there. I'm boss up here. Yes, that's history. We've shifted from being the focal point of the fear to being the heroes. This would be unheard of 25 years ago. If we can use what we've experienced, we can tell stories that people have never seen before. And that was by way of introduction, a look at the strange history of black people in horror movies and thoughts on the subject from historian Twilight's own screenwriter and teacher at UCLA of The Sunken Place, Racism Survival, and the Black Horror Aesthetic, Tanana Rivdu. First, some scenes from one of those hot topic movies she'll be talking about, Get Out, then Tanana Rivdu. What? Do they know I'm black? Should they? You might wanna, you know. Mom and Dad, my black boyfriend will be coming up this weekend. I just don't want you to be shocked that he's a black man. <laughs> I ain't never seen you like this before, bro. Meeting family, taking road trips. Don't come back all bougie, man. Come back, get your damn pants up to your damn stomach. <laughs> so you guys coming up from the city? Yeah, we're just heading up for the weekend. Can I see your license, please? He wasn't driving. I didn't ask who was driving. I asked to see his ID. Call me Dean and you're hungry, my man. So how long has this been going on, this, this thing? <laughs> we hired Georgina and Walter to help care for my parents. When they died, I couldn't bear to let them go. Do you smoke in front of my daughter? I'm gonna quit. She'd take care of that for you. How? Hypnosis. I'm good, actually. Are you ready for this? How bad can it be? So look, I go do my research. Apparently, a whole bunch of brothers been missing in this suburb. But it's cool. Bro, how you not scared of this, man? Couldn't see another brother around here. 
Chris was just telling me how he felt much more comfortable with my being here. Get out. Sorry, man. Okay. Get out! Yo! <laughs> Rose, we gotta go. Is everything okay? Rose, the keys. Just get the keys. I don't know where they are. Rose! Sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. <laughs> Terrible thing to waste. Terrible thing to waste. If there's too many white people, I get Hi, my name is Tanana Reeve. I am an author and screenwriter. I'm an executive producer on Shudder's Horror Noir, and I teach a black horror class at UCLA called The Sunken Place, Racism, Survival, and the Black Horror Aesthetic. Today, I'm going to give you an overview of the history of black horror films. So my love for horror, like a lot of black women I know, started at a young age because my mother loved horror. My late mother was a civil rights activist. She was my first shiro and in fact had a tear gas canister thrown in her face. So she wore dark glasses the whole time I knew her as an adult. I mentioned that because my mother suffered trauma. I began to realize that my mother was using horror movies as a way to soothe her trauma and anger and fear out of not just the civil rights movement, but racial trauma in the United States. Something pretty extraordinary happened <laughs> uh, in, in very recent years. Jordan Peele released his Oscar-winning uh, screenplay, uh, but the film was called Get Out, which was a black horror story by a black creator, a black story told through a black lens, which was very different than the horror that I had been seeing up to that point. It's a really, really exciting time to be a horror creator and a horror fan. And I am personally seeing the impact of that. But it has been a long road to this point. This is not where we started. So I'd like to go back a little bit and talk about the history of black horror and film so we can all have a better idea of how significant it is that we are where we are today. So when we look at the history of black horror films and blacks in horror films, Dr. Robin Armines Coleman in her book Horror Noir does make a distinction between black horror, which is black created and black driven horror, and blacks in horror, which is non-black creators where often we are ill-used. Let's look at something that you might not even consider a horror film, The Birth of a Nation, D.W. Griffith's film, which was the first Hollywood blockbuster. It reigned in movie theaters as like the top box office for all intents and purposes, a generation. It was the most popular film in the country. And unfortunately, encoded in that film is some very toxic imagery and some very toxic propaganda propping up the Confederacy. And even worse than that, the Ku Klux Klan. So the remnants of the Confederacy, which are these masked Avengers, basically whites dressed up in hoods. This was popularized in the, I mean, the burning of the crosses and all this became sort of a template for how domestic terrorism could look. But for moviegoers who were not black, this was not considered domestic terrorism. This was just justice. This was the natural order. So starting in 1915 with the birth of a nation, that would be blacks in horror, although a lot of them weren't even black. It was just white actors in blackface. But that was showcasing black monstrosity. Um, they're gonna rise up, they're gonna steal your women, they're gonna take your jobs or whatever. And we're still sort of under the cloud of that propaganda from 1915 today in many ways as we've tried to move away from those stereotypes. So then jump ahead to the 1940s where finally filmmaker Spencer Williams wrote Son of Ngagi, the first black science fiction horror film, which is black driven, black characters, doctor, lawyer, weddings, all kinds of middle class respectability to try to counteract all those stereotypes. You can contrast that to the movie that came out a year later, 1941, King of the Zombies, starring Mantan Moreland. This is comic horror. Mantan Moreland was very well known, terrific performer, but unfortunately spent a lot of his time having to make buggy eyes and feeds don't fail me now and the black, you know, have to be saved by the white man. 
So these, this is a battle, two sides trying to tell the story of blacks in horror. Moving beyond the 40s, we disappeared a great deal in the 50s. By the time you get to the 60s, there's the breakout performance of Dwayne Jones in Night of the Living Dead. He won the role of the protagonist, Ben. Ben ends up in a, in a room, basically, with this white woman, Barbara. They're coming to get you, Barbara. That line. So Ben ends up with Barbara. Barbara's in shock. At, at one point, they, she slaps him. He hits her back in 1968. And to have a black protagonist, not only the alpha and in charge of all this group of characters in the house, but killing all these white zombies, I'm thinking that that looked pretty disturbing to racist moviegoers in particular. Whereas black moviegoers are like, what is going on here? Oh my gosh, so exciting. The 1970s is the growth of the black exploitation era. This is when black filmmakers were having an opportunity to really tell their own version of a horror story. So instead of Dracula, you get Blackula. Uh, William Crane directed this as a very young director. He took it in a direction that the filmmakers, uh, the studio wasn't really comfortable with, adding African history, and he has his characters that their names are in Swahili, but the filmmaker was trying to elevate the material above what we had seen previously. So the 1970s saw the gamut of black horror from black creators, where in a film like Abby, it's a black woman who's possessed by sort of a sex demon. Again, not always the best messages, but at least was an opportunity for black filmmakers to show themselves in film and, and, and to move beyond the, the worst stereotypes that we had seen in previous eras. So the 1980s were the double-edged sword of representation. Like, yay, there's more of us in the films, but because the financing models had moved away from the black exploitation era where films were just going to show in black neighborhoods for black audiences, once you sort of globalize movie making, that's when you start to see those parts really shrinking for the black characters and becoming tropey. So your background characters, your sassy characters, you're gonna die. If you're not dying first, you're definitely gonna die second or third. You're generally not going to make it until the end of the movie. And we start to see more of those stereotypes of the magical Negro, the sacrificial Negro, the spiritual guide emerging in the 80s. So the magical Negro is that character, often characterizes other, usually you're the only person of color in the movie, and you're the one with all the answers. You're the character the white characters go to for all their magical needs. The sacrificial Negro is that character who will throw him or herself in harm's way, literally jump in front of the monster to save the white characters. Some of the most obvious examples of those tropes showing up in films in the 80s are The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's Shining in 1980, where Dick Holleran, the character played by Scatman Crothers, who survives in Stephen King's novel, actually ends up getting an ax in the chest the minute he walks through the door by Jack Nicholson. In the film version, classic sacrificial Negro, the early 2000s and 2001 had an example of a magical Negro in the film Jeepers Creepers, where again, a black woman is showing up pretty randomly to give advice and putting herself at risk to try to save the white characters and convince them that she knows about the creature that's stalking them. Luckily, she does survive, but she came this close to being a sacrificial Negro too. The 90s were an amazing film renaissance all through film, including horror. So you had directors getting opportunities to tell their stories. Rusty Cundiff, Tales from the Hood, really stands out from 1995. Four short horror stories, a lot of them uh, revenge-oriented, a lot of them a plea for, sometimes a plea for the black community to do better within its homes or within its communities, but also lots of payback for evil racist cops or for racist politicians. Beyond Tales from the Hood, there's also Casey Lemon's beautiful film, Eve's Bayou, which is mostly a drama, but it has tinges of voodoo and the horror is in the home. It's the story of young Eve and her coming of age and really loss of innocence as she begins to wonder if her philandering father, played by Samuel Jackson, might have had inappropriate contact with her sister. And she believes that she created a voodoo spell to kill him. Contrasting that would be the 1990s version of Candyman. 
which was not by a, a black filmmaker, although it did star the iconic actor Tony Todd as Candyman. And I've talked to Tony Todd, and I know that that role was a sense of pride for a lot of young blacks, especially probably young black men who saw him as strong and powerful and in charge of his own destiny. But civil rights groups were not happy at the time of the idea of a black serial killer, basically, which is what Candyman was, especially, I think, because he was plaguing his own community, the Cabrini Green Projects in Chicago. So even though Candyman's backstory was that he had basically been mauled and, and killed by racists because of his love for a white woman, when he comes back, he's attacking a black housing project. Candyman was considered problematic in its day, although it really does still stand out as one of the iconic horror films. We also started to see the emergence of black women in horror in bigger roles. Uh, Alien vs. Predator came out, and Sanaa Lathan is a badass. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? In 2002, R&B star Aaliyah was in Queen of the Damned, and in not the lead role, but a great role, so nice representation. We're starting to see it just a little bit more, but it's also just sprinkles here and there. So with this sort of hit and miss history, there wasn't really uh, a congealed idea of what black horror was going into the 2010s until Jordan Peele created Get Out, which has opened the door and opened imaginations so that people like me who create horror and people who are just fans of horror finally have an opportunity to just be like everybody else, whether it's about race or not about race. So Get Out, obviously racism is the monster. Us, the follow-up to Get Out, not so much. It's more about class, although it is still revolutionary that Peele intentionally cast that movie with black actors. First of all, horror is like any other film genre in the sense that representation matters. Our films as a culture should look like our nation. This is kind of a no-brainer, but it's been a long journey. They can learn to empathize with us and yell and scream on our behalf. And that's in us and other marginalized groups and queer characters. There's room for everybody. I think as a culture, we all just need to learn how to see the humanity in each other. And I'm just really grateful that we've reached the time when we can show our more of our full measure of humanity on film. All this to say, uh, especially all of you creators out there, don't listen to the naysayers who tell you don't waste your time writing horror or writing science fiction. There has never been a better time to be a black horror creator, and I can't wait to see the stories you'll tell. And thank you, BuzzFeed, for that presentation. And now on Arts Express, in our Don't Touch That Dial episode this week. This is Jack Shalom. Don't touch that dial. Now, the music you just heard was the song Jolene by Dolly Parton, sung by Holly Herndon. The video the song is from is making a sensation on YouTube. Why? Well, here I need to correct myself. Because what you just heard were the vocal phonemes and pitches and rhythms of Holly Herndon's voice. But Holly Herndon, the human being never sang the song at all. The voice is what's called a deep fake, an artificial intelligence software program trained on lots and lots of examples of Holly Herndon's voice that can be used to create never-before-uttered phrases and songs in Holly Herndon's voice. Herndon calls this new artificial intelligence voice, or AI tool, by the name of Holly Plus. So what you heard was not Holly Herndon, 
but holly plus. In fact, the only thing in the song that is humanly produced, according to Holly Herndon, is the guitar. Let's listen again. And I can easily understand how you can easily take my man, but you don't know what it means to me, Jolene. 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 Does knowing that Holly Plus is doing the singing change your mind about the quality of the voice? Now, Herndon claims that she can do the same for any song. She can run a song through her software, and out comes Holly Plus's voice singing the song. And here's the super interesting thing. Herndon's plan is to open source her voice. To that end, she's made a website available where anyone can access Holly Plus. You go to the website, upload an audio song file, and within seconds, it spits back a new version of the song with Holly Plus's voice characteristics on it. Well, at least that's the theory. Now, how well the website Holly Plus accomplishes its task is another story. We'll deal with it later. But for now, let's just consider the wild artistic and commercial implications, which are absolutely staggering. Herndon herself has given considerable thought about the implications in ways that, well, make sense to me. Let's deal first with the fact that after an artist dies, the artist's voice patterns can still be used to sing other songs. Now, we've had old recordings of, say, uh, deceased Nat King Cole spliced together with the same song sung by his daughter, Natalie Cole. But this is different. Imagine... <laughs> horrors that someone wanted to use the voice of Nat King Cole to sing, say, a heavy metal song. Well, now, theoretically, that's possible. Someone can make a deep fake of Nat King Cole's voice, trained on the tons of Nat King Cole audio out there, and voila, you have a new Nat King Cole deep fake tool. We could call it Nat Plus. Now, Run any song through Nat Plus, and it should spit out Nat King Cole singing whatever song you put in. Nat King Cole K-pop, anyone? Of course, now the questions arise. Who gets the money paid for such a song? Would a person have to get permission to use Nat Plus? Should the royalty go to the Nat King Cole estate or to the creator of the deep fake? And what about the songwriters? Well, the interesting thing here is that there's actually case law on some aspects of this dilemma that stems from before the advent of AI deepfakes. Look, in 1988, the Ford Motor Company wanted to hire Bette Midler to sing one of her signature songs, Do You Wanna Dance, to extol the virtues of Ford automobiles. Well, Miss Midler vetoed the idea, implying that she had no wish to pimp for Ford. So what Ford did, in their infinite wisdom, was to hire one of Midler's backup singers to imitate Midler singing the song. As you might imagine, <laughs> Midler hit the roof and sued. And here's the important part. She won the case. Now, even more interesting was a case in 1992 when singer Tom Waits sued the Frito-Lay company for using an impersonator to give the impression that Waits was enchanted by consuming Doritos. Now, what was important in this case is that the impersonator wasn't just impersonating an already identified song of Waits. Waits argued that beyond vocal reenactment of existing repertoire, quote, some stylistic aspects of the voice are definable, extractable, and defensible against unauthorized use. And the court agreed. So now you can see where this leaves us. A deep fake of an artist can only be used with that artist's or the artist's estate's permission, which 
makes a whole lot of sense to me. The singing royalty would go to the artist, while the songwriting royalty still goes to the writer of the song, just as any cover version would. Whether the creator of the deep fake gets a cut is something that has to be negotiated between the artist and the deep fake software engineers. Well, Holly Herndon has gone one step further by creating a template for artists who wish to open source their work and yet still protect their intellectual property. She issued a kind of manifesto for how she would like Holly Plus to develop. First off, by making Holly Plus available to the general public for free through her website, as long as the results are not used commercially, she guarantees that Holly Plus's voice will be ubiquitous and proliferate and be well known in the media space. But second, among all that Holly Plus material generated, there are bound to be items that have more commercial potential than others. So at this point, Holly can commercially authorize those particular items which look very promising and charge a royalty on them. The benefit of allowing so much material to be allowed out into the wild freely is the fascinating fact that it's the very proliferation of reproductions of artworks that confer value onto the original. Now, this idea was explained in a very influential essay by Walter Benjamin called The Work of Art in the Mechanical Age. And then that idea was amplified by John Berger in his book, Ways of Seeing. The idea is that the process of easy reproduction in a capitalist society makes the original all the more valuable. The original gets put in museums or otherwise valorized, while the reproduction gives us notice that there is an original somewhere else, one of a kind and scarce and therefore valuable. The more reproductions that exists, the more the marketplace is signaling that the original is something worth reproducing. Well, so much for theory. Let's talk about Holly Plus in practice. The website was put up over a year ago, and I tried it out. As a first test, I uploaded the audio file of Frank Sinatra singing Strangers in the Night through the Holly Plus website. Well, you know that song, of course. Strangers in the night Exchanging glances Wandering in the night What were the chances we'd well, The website accepted the song and processed it disconcertingly quickly and directed me to download the result. I, frankly, I wondered how it could give me a good job so quickly. And I got my answer. The answer is, it didn't. But you judge for yourself. Here's what I heard back. Okay, I wasn't expecting as great a result as what I heard in the Jolene example that you heard at the top of the segment, but I thought it would at least be passable. And I thought, maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I should try again, this time with a female voice. So I ran Judy Collins's version of Both Sides Now through the Holly Plus software. Here's the original. <laughs> ice cream castles in the air and feathered canyons everywhere and here's what holly plus turned out again a few seconds after uploading it to the holly plus website Maybe a little bit better, but still a far cry from the results Herndon had displayed in the Jolene video.
So then I had another idea. Why not upload the audio file of Jolene as sung by Dolly Parton into the Holly Plus software website? After all, that's what Herndon claimed she was doing. So I did. Here's Dolly. Jolene, 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 Jolene I'm begging of you, please don't take my man Jolene And now here's Holly Plus. Once more, you be the judge. Yeah, pretty disappointing. I started thinking that I had screwed up somehow. The results were nothing like what Holly Plus was supposed to actually do. I couldn't understand it. So I went back to the original Jolene YouTube video that Herndon had put out, and I started to read all the comments, hoping to get a clue there as to what was going on. And then I found it. Two posters left comments which echoed my concerns. They had uploaded a song to the website of Holly Plus 2, and the results seemed very disappointing. What did Herndon have to say about that? Well, the good news is that Holly Herndon actually responded, and here's what she wrote. The singing is all generated from a score using an AI model of my voice. The only thing in the audio is the guitar, which is human-played. As to why the website results seem so inadequate, she replied, now this was two weeks ago, the website is using a different polyphonic timber transfer model. The realistic model used to make this song will be shared soon with a different interface. Oh. So. I've been checking back every day now for the new website and the more realistic model of Holly Plus Promised. And I'm sad to report that there's nothing new there yet. And of the dozen or so items that Herndon outlined as wanting to accomplish with Holly Plus during 2021 and 2022, only one is checked off as having been done. And then an awful thought ran across my lips, which actually made me smile to myself. What if Herndon's deep fake was not a deep fake at all, but was actually Herndon herself singing her heart out to Jolene in real time? A deep fake fake out. How would anybody know? And after all, isn't that Herndon's point anyway? that either now or in the near future, there'll be no way to know for sure, and we had better start thinking about how we can set up ethical structures before it all gets out of hand? Maybe I was faked out by the notion of a deep fake. Was it all a prank? Well, frankly, I thought for a while of contacting Herndon and demanding that she explain herself and tell us what is going on here, what is the truth here. But then, you know, I decided maybe wanting to know the real truth here is like asking a magician to reveal how the tricks are done. Why kill the mystery? Not everything needs to be known. This is Jack Shalom Plus for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.
something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down This is Jim Messina and I wanted to let you know that I'm going to give a shout out here for Arts Express There's bad lines being drawn Nobody's right if everybody's wrong Young people speaking their minds Are getting so much resistance from behind Time we stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going We'll go out now on Arts Express with filmmaker Brett Gregory speaking to the show from the UK about his dramatic feature, Nobody Loves You and You Don't Deserve to Exist. The Manchester, England working-class filmmaker ventures by way of a combo personal and political odyssey deep into the heart of what plagues Britain during this ongoing economic crisis. And amid news of mass strikes looming, along with reports of impoverished Brits resorting to animal feed for food and cooking their meals with candles because they can no longer afford fuel. Gregory touches on the very intimate impact of all this coming of age in Manchester as the historical origins of the Industrial Revolution and the birth of Marxism in that city as well, its blueprint crafted in a collaboration back then by Marx and Engels. First, some scenes from Nobody Loves You and You Don't Deserve to Exist, then Brett Gregory. Here lies Jack, who has eaten ashes like bread and drunk tears like wine, his days consumed by smoke. Friendless and without family, he will be remembered only by his enemies until they too depart this infected isle as lost owls in the desert. All day and night, our protagonist would sulk in his bed, haunted by the dead weight of his woes. Shadows shuddering in the corner of his room as if he were trapped inside an abandoned cemetery. To the point of madness, he would listen to the mice chase each other behind the skirting board. And then, envisage his body, snail towards the grave. And now here's filmmaker Brett Gregory speaking to us from Manchester, England. How does this film and the story represent each of the periods in which it exists, from the Thatcher years to Boris Johnson? Thatcher, Major and Boris. In Nobody Loves You and You Don't Deserve to Exist, we witness through the eyes of the film's working-class protagonist the collateral damage caused by cumulative right-wing policies and legislation enforced by Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s, John Major in the 1990s, and Boris Johnson et al. in the 2000s. And why did you choose the Borges quote to open your film? Although I grew up on a rundown working-class council estate or housing project, I studied very hard. 
The film opens with a quote from The Circular Ruins because Borges's fantastical short story collection, since the quote seems to suggest that life is an illusion, I wanted to remind people that the story they're about to watch, even though based on true events, is just that, a story, a memory, a dream, a nightmare. Borges was born in Buenos Aires, and the Falklands conflict, or the Battle of Malvinas, between Britain and Argentina in 1982, had a profound effect on me as a child. That is, it was the first time that I saw on television the true destructive power of the British state in the present tense. And, in a number of ways, this served as a personal creative catalyst. This said, after the conflict was over, Borges himself simply described it as two bald men fighting over a comb. And what can you say about the choice and significance of your film title, Nobody Loves You and You Don't Deserve to Exist? Nobody Loves You and You Don't Deserve to Exist. On a wider level, the title refers to the inhumane trajectory British right-wing politics has taken since the late 70s, and how the financially disadvantaged at the bottom or on the margins of society have suffered and continue to suffer horrifically. The needless excess deaths in British elderly care homes during the recent COVID pandemic are an enduring example of this. In short, the poor and the vulnerable have never been loved under Tory rule, and despite their invaluable contributions to the character, culture and the history of our country, they've always been treated like they don't deserve to exist. And what about the recurrent striking visuals and images you've included and the impact you were pursuing. The film was shot almost entirely in Greater Manchester in the north of England, a region which, amongst many other historical achievements, gave birth to the Industrial Revolution, enabled the women's suffragette movement, and devised the blueprints for the modern computer. Fortunately, an array of Gothic architecture and civic statues from the Victorian age still stand in and around the city, and, as a film director, consumed by the poetic and the historic, such dark and foreboding iconography helped to elevate the screenplay's key themes of loss, abandonment, immorality and madness. Furthermore, since quality independent filmmaking is extremely rare in the UK, Manchester hasn't appeared that often on cinema screens in all its gothic glory. And so this unique production was a great opportunity to share its character and vibe with the rest of the world. It should be noted, however, that due to its politically sensitive subject matter and, let's say, its overall Brechtian aesthetic, this feature film had to be self-funded if it was ever going to see the light of day or the darkness of the night. Even though the cast and crew committed their time and talents to the project for free over a period of six and a half years, the production still personally cost me around $45,000 in bank loans and credit cards to complete. As a consequence, we now only have desire and dreams left in the kitty to market and promote the film to a wider audience. So, if there are any hard-working, politically motivated cinephiles or culture vultures out there who would like to actively support our little hand grenade of a movie by hosting a free screening or publishing a review, then please email brett at seriousfeather.com. And when you refer to a broken Britain in your film, what do you mean and the causes and solutions? Where do I begin? As mentioned earlier, there was the Falklands conflict, the miners' strike and the privatisation of public services in the 1980s. In the 1990s, we had the first Gulf War, the launch of the Student Loans Company and widespread racketeering throughout Westminster with politicians accepting bribes left, right and centre. Throughout the 2000s, we had the second Gulf War, revelations about the mass media's rampant phone hacking of celebrities and members of the public and, to make matters worse, a £141 billion government bailout of the UK's corrupt banking system, which, incidentally, led to no arrests or prison sentences. In the 2010s, the austerity cuts began, plunging millions below the poverty line and killing off those who were already down there. Then, for the entire world to see, 
the super xenophobic Brexit propaganda machine was fired up, funded and fueled by nefarious right-wing forces hiding in the shadows. In turn, this was then followed by both the Windrush scandal and the Grenfell Tower disaster, which, once again, exposed this country's deep-seated colonialist and racist roots. Now, in the 2020s, here we are having to deal with PPE, waste and corruption, the cost of living catastrophe, burgeoning food banks, burgeoning billionaires, criminally low pay across the entire public sector and, inevitably, industrial strike action up and down the country. And all of these crises have the same root cause. Neoliberalist expansionism, entitlement, greed, incompetence, prejudice, contempt and cruelty, all in the name of profit and power. It's ridiculous, exhausting and utterly dispiriting for so many millions of decent, hard-working and thoughtful British citizens to turn around and take a look at our once great nation and see nothing more than a disfigured kleptocracy. Our trust in the current political system is broken. Our faith in post-industrial capitalism is broken. And, judging from the inexorable rise in mental health issues, our minds are also broken. Enough is enough. I'm no soothsayer, but it's going to take at least two decades of world-beating, self-sacrificial civic service and leadership to reinstate time-honoured values like fairness, togetherness, cooperation, transparency, dignity and intelligence back into what remains of the United Kingdom. And what about Boris Johnson bragging that the UK doesn't need Russian gas because of US liquefied gas instead? So what is going on with the current fuel and heating crisis over there across the UK? Despite his heavily financed international PR campaign, Boris Johnson is perceived by most Britons as an overprivileged, underdeveloped sociopath disguised as a bloated court jester. The perfect embodiment of self-serving Tory principles and values. With regards to the current energy crisis, this privately educated royalist thug ignored requests from the scientific community during his final weeks as Prime Minister to introduce price caps which would curb gas and electric companies' excessive profits and protect families on a low income. Instead, he parted and holidayed abroad with his third wife using taxpayers' money, while his corrupt crew of client journalists began to engineer an upbeat political legacy for him by attempting to reprogramme people's memories with fake feel-good news stories. Now we have 6.7 million households suffering from fuel poverty, price rises overtaking pay rises, schools unable to afford their heating bills, ambulances parked on top of one another at the back of hospitals and we're now told by the latest clutch of killer clowns currently in office everything is going to be much much worse in 2023. And what can you say about the looming mass railroad and other strikes across Britain as a result of all this and any updates about mass protests against the austerity measures? I can't believe it's taken so long to happen. Public sector workers have been disrespected and mistreated in this country for decades. I used to be a lecturer in film and cultural studies at a college in Manchester, and I and a couple of others were regularly bullied behind closed doors by the department's manager until an insane and illegal 70-hour working week became normalised. Teaching, assessing and admin, preparing outstanding learning materials over unpaid weekends and holidays. No thanks to this Tory government and its beloved market forces, as well as the education sector and the National Rail Network, our National Health Service is now on the verge of collapse. Patients are malingering in A&E for at least 15 hours at the moment. People are literally afraid of falling ill or are having an accident or are utterly terrified that all their teeth will fall out because there's an 18-week waiting list to see a dentist. And we're supposed to be the fifth richest economy in the world. Due to the historical hierarchical structure of the UK social system, toffs at the top, plebs at the bottom, many ordinary people are crippled by deference and obedience. 
Basically, most consider it rude to protest, even if their kids are starving. Furthermore, the right-wing mainstream media continue with their corporate campaign of misinforming and distracting the general public. Far more chilling, however, is the new Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act, which came into effect in 2022. This extremist legislation brought in by the Conservatives' Killer Clown Collective effectively increases police powers to further restrict British citizens' democratic right to protest, to march in public or to even raise their voices loudly and proudly in political opposition for fear of upsetting the neighbours. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.